Check, check, check. Okay, there it is. Okay, well, uh, cat's out of the bag, everyone. We here at Pod Damn America managed to snag an interview with um, uh, online sensation Senator Mike Gravel, who, uh, if you're unfamiliar with, is the senator from Alaska. Um, from, well, was the senator from Alaska. He's but he had a brief resurgence in the 2008 Democratic primaries when he ran as a protest candidate in order to sort of uh, bring to light some more radical issues, some more anti-U.S. imperialistic issues, and, um, you know, ran on a uh, like a shoestring budget. I think I read at one point he had $500 <laughs> in his campaign <laughs> coffers and was running against Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Um, and the whole point of it was to get on the... Uh, the debate stages, which he did, and was allowed to speak for a little bit. Um, that's sort of the legacy of this guy, Mike Gravel, right? Well, you might have heard his name lately. Uh, if you don't know who he is, or if you just heard his name, and you're kind of going, where do I remember this name from? Um, he was recently tapped to sort of repeat this concept, um, and just recently announced his 2020 candidacy for uh, you know the Democratic nomination for the presidential race. Um, he again is running a protest campaign. Um, he's not running to win. He's stated that, you know, all said and done, he will eventually back the most progressive candidate. Um, but what's interesting is what happened is, you know, the reason he decided to do this is he was tapped by some fucking extremely online teenagers that, read his you know his story and probably knew about him and thought you should do this again because it'll help pull the Overton window left which will definitely help in this upcoming presidential campaign um, we've already seen how much it's moved left since 2016 uh, uh, Jesus Christ my brain's melting um, <laughs> so what's interesting and what's kind of funny and the reason this whole story went viral I think is that Mike Gravel wants nothing to do with uh, the hell that we all live in, the extremely online Twitter world. And so he handed the keys to his Twitter account to these fucking Zoomer-ass shit posters, and <laughs> they've taken his Twitter account and combined, you know, their leftist ideology with their ability to uh, to put, you know, dumb shit on the internet. <laughs> and so his Twitter account is fucking insane and great. And it's uh, probably providing some much needed, you know, fuel for his candidacy. The point of his candidacy being to reach that, I think, $65,000 or whatever. Uh, the the 65000 donations, I'm fucking this up. But the amount of donations that you need to, uh, to get on the, uh, the debate stage in this election. Um, so I'll read you some, some Gravel, Gravel Gang tweets, by the way. The, uh, the hashtag that they came up with is... Uh, I thought it was Gravel Gang, but apparently it's pronounced Gravel. Gravel Gang. Um, so here's some tweets from at Mike Gravel. Um, it's all fun and games till Commander Charlie Kirk orders his platoon to fire on protesters outside the Guaido res residence in Operation Venezuelan Freedom. <laughs> this is a blue checkmark fucking senator tweeted that. Um, here's a, tw <laughs> here's a, he tweeted a, a video of Pete Buttigieg um, walking through an office, uh, talking about some fucking 
technocratic bullshit. Here's the Gravel tweet. Honestly, I doubt there would be a clearer way to telegraph his messianic view of himself unless he went full French and shouted, I am Jupiter, God of gods. <laughs> um, a radical idea from our platform. If you oppose war, you should be able to make your tax dollars don't go to fund it. Senator Gravel argued this uh, argued for this back in 1979. Imagine if this had been available for Vietnam or Iraq. We would have left much, much sooner. So you see the pattern here. Uh, shit posting and then some some radical shit injected in between. Um, I mean, it's, that's a strategy that's near and dear to our hearts, I think. Um, Structural change is, is impossible is an absolutely frigid take. Foreclosing on changes to our electoral system is saying the sickness at heart of our nation cannot be can never be healed. So this is fucking cool um, that this person is uh, is is doing this for the specific reason to introduce these ideas. Um, at Mike Gravel, the first step in smashing American imperialism is radical honesty with ourselves. We don't intervene; we invade. That's not collateral damage. Those are the corpses of parents and children. Ours is not a department of defense. It's a department of war. Um, Here's some more Gravel tweets. This one is from uh, the 30th of March. Um, I think this might have been before all this Biden stuff came out. Personal conduct has political ramifications. Klobuchar won't be good for workers' rights, and Biden's inexcusable history with women provides a context for the unforgettable, quote, I don't think that woman has a sole right to say what should happen to her body, quote. Um, <laughs> and then, like, also in the same day, he just tw- uh, qu- uh, tweeted an Intercept article about Cory Booker saying that he and the APAC president text back and forth, and the caption he provided is just cool and relatable. <laughs> so he's just dunking on, like, Beto and fucking Cory Booker. Um <laughs> He quote tweeted Beto O'Rourke and said, the Beto campaign will pierce new frontiers in meaninglessness. So this kicks ass. I mean, obviously he didn't say this. These fucking kids said this, but um, I mean, good on him for just signing off and saying fucking go for it. Um, anyways, we will be talking to him uh, later on in the episode. First, we're going to talk with Anders and Alex a little bit about some things that happened this week that made me very angry. Enjoy the show. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God damn America. That's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating us citizens as less than human. God damn America. As long as she tries to act like she is God and she is supreme. Hello, greetings, the damned, and welcome to Pod Damn America, the motherfucking gothic socialist podcast. Uh, hello, uh, welcome to the show today. I'm Jake Flores. With me is Anders Lee. Anders Lee here. And through the uh, telecommunication systems is Alex Patak. Hello, I'm full of cheese in Minnesota. <laughs> uh, you're full of cheese. Uh, you should be full of walleye. That's the state dish. What the fuck is walleye? It's a type of fish. (laughs) Is it a lake fish? Yeah, yeah. 
don't mansplain to me what I am full of, Andy. I'm in Scotland, <laughs> Minnesota. Minsplain. Check out the, if you, if you wind up in. I've only eaten hamburgers for seven days. Do you have a Juicy Lucy yet? That's a, uh, no. He's a married man. That's the one with cheese in the middle of the burger. If you go to the Nook in St. Paul, Highland Park, get a Juicy Lucy. Then uh, stroll up the street to the Tavern on Grand, get a walleye. I, look, I have a wife and I have a girlfriend that is a dog <laughs> that I spoon at the club owner of Minneapolis's house. <laughs> and we make love. I'll say it. I'm not afraid to say it. Oh. It should be legal. It should, it, Shit, we didn't ask good. the senator about his position on man dog love. <laughs> what time is it there? How are you this fucked up already? <laughs> uh, I guess it's Minnesota. I've been there. Um, yeah. Last time when I went to Minnesota, a guy bought me a beer with an entire pickle in it. Not like a pickleback whiskey shot. He just handed me a beer with a whole pickle in it and was like, this is a thing here. And I was like, I don't think this is a thing no, here. No, I've never had that. <laughs> I think this is just your thing, guy, but I'll drink it. <laughs> anyway. I heard in Texas they like things big. Like a whole pickle in your beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's his way of adopting your culture. Dude, I love making shit up like that. My friend Chris, one time, he he's from New York and he moved to Texas and like he just no one there was from Texas. And for like a year, he just kept this bit going where he would he would tell us like, you know, in New York you can get like you can get scrapple or you can get like you know, etc. You can get pierogies. You can also go to a diner and instead of getting like silver dollar pancakes or a regular stack of pancakes, you can get one giant pancake and it's referred to as a bejesus. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not that's not a real thing at all, but he just said it with a straight face. <laughs> like anyway, a year into it, it all found out he was lying, and so we got fucked up and made him make a bejesus. And it wasn't bad. <laughs> just used a giant pan. Isn't it, isn't it all uncooked in the middle? Ah, uh, yeah, but you know, uh, it's a little fine. bit of that is good. A little goo. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of cool. It was it's like called a, a bejesus, and the middle might be raw, not unlike American politics. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> I can always count on you, Alex, to segue us into generally politics, which is what this show was, is supposed to be about. Generally politics. It's going to be from the perspective <laughs> of Robert E. Lee. Maybe in this interview later. I'm not sure. <laughs> that shit gets all over the place. Um, right off the bat, first thing we should discuss this week is... Um, Venezuela, which is something we haven't talked well, about in a little me. bit. Venezuela. Venezuela. I'm afraid to cover it. <laughs> As it is referred to um, by uh, you know people who are more, more culturally sensitive and, and from there. Uh, Venezuela. Venezuela. Um, <laughs> so, right. I'm making fun of people who say that who don't have to. Oh, believe me. Uh, I, yeah. yeah that's it's like calling fr- it's when It's like if you were to call France Francais. I fucking listen. I'm a Mexican from Texas. I I understand why people do it. I understand it's an awkward situation, but like I spent a good 25 years standing in line behind white people at taco like trucks where they would be like, "Um, yes, excuse me, uh, uh por por favor, un taco con cheese." 
and beans. <laughs> like to be saying like the English word, but with, but, this, like, with, <laughs> with this weird. It's great to be here at your pollo truck. And then like guy in the in the fucking truck is like what? Because <laughs> he's like some guy who's been there for thirty years. That's what what I always wondered is is the inverse true in Mexico? Is there like a hot dog stand and there's like a Mexican who tries to order and is like. I will have hot dog. Yeah, I think I saw Moser Casher do a joke about that one time where he was he, he was like, yeah, was, you never see a Mexican guy walk into your restaurant and be like, um, eh, por favor, un hamburger. Oh, fuck. Okay. You know, well, how do you say dude. parallel thoughts in Spanish? You're sw- you're, you're s- code switching mid-sentence is the <laughs> fucking the, the funny part of it where it's just like, it's just embarrassing for everyone involved. That's why I... Dude, maybe... Maybe not in Mexico, but I'm going to Japan soon, and that shit will for sure be happening. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to try to to speak Japanese? <laughs> Please do and the most. Impression, it is illegal for me to do. Yeah. <laughs> Just the most offensive fucking, <laughs> like, drunk um, bowing and shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, I had a friend, Drew Kaufman, um, from two minutes to late night, the YouTube heavy metal show. He went to Japan, and he, he he said pretty explicitly when he got back, he's like, "Yeah, you can ask for stuff in English, but they will not understand you unless you do a very offensive accent." <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's all like, I you need to hear. You need to say McDonald's. You have to like L those R's, and <laughs> <laughs> you have to do something that it would get you canceled in the states just to <laughs> even be understood. That makes sense. To get direction. <laughs> oh, um, excuse me, sir. I would like un oburrito. <laughs> <laughs> You're in a taco stand there? <laughs> I am. I am. Forgive me. I am from Venezuela. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm canceled. Um, <laughs> so um, the, the New York Times this week put out this this fucking video about Venezuela, which uh, we haven't talked about much since, you know, we did an episode where we had uh, a journalist come in and explain, you know, from the inside uh, what everyone's getting wrong about Venezuela. And obviously it's bubbling up and becoming, you know, a a big national issue that sort of 2020 uh, campaigns and politics and shit are going to be centered around. So we're going to be talking about it for a while. But um, for anyone that missed this, there is this fucking op-ed video that the Times put out this last week by a comedian named Joanna Houseman Hatar, um, who comedian, <laughs> who, is a, who is according to her Twitter bio, comedian, writer, Venezuelan, YouTube person, Joanna Rants, uh, correspondent for uh, Netflix. According to Guido, she is a comedian. Yeah, <laughs> and so. She Does made... the United States government recognize her as a comedian? <laughs> <laughs> I wish they would recognize me as a comedian. It's her being unrecognized. Um, <laughs> they recognize her as a dumpster fire. Ooh. So, um, <laughs> she made this uh, kind of fucking uh, polished, produced, punchy, um, short explainer video about Venezuela or as she would call it, Venezuela, um, ex- <laughs> explaining what supposedly her liberal friends are getting wrong about Venezuela. And she, um, I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. She did so by employing just the hackiest comedic tools 
uh, the, like my first day on Twitter jokes, like um, such and such is my spirit animal. Um, she called Ruth Bader Ginsburg her spirit animal. Uh, she called something a dumpster fire. She said supporting uh, Maduro is not a good look. Uh, just very hateable video. <laughs> um, also, as he called leftist chief. Yeah, <laughs> this ain't it, uh, Chiefs. Um, as, as my friend Mike McCray pointed out, um, we very well may invade a foreign country because of a UCB student. Uh, and that sucks. He said that if that happens, he's joining ISIS. Mike McCray is very funny. Um, you should check him out. He's on the Jimmy Dore show sometimes. Um, <laughs> but um, she made some points in the video that were sort of like uh, really fallacious, like. The first thing she does is refer to Maduro as a tyrannical dictator um, who is not elected democratically, which is, um, you know, not true. Um, but then also it's at least ambiguous. At least like sure. we don't, yeah, he he has been elected democratically in the past. The latest election were you know, some question marks, but he's not a dictator. She uh, she then goes on to go through the list of people that, you know, prominently um, sort of stand against U.S. intervention in Venezuela, like um, Ilan Omar, Boots Riley, Bernie Sanders, takes a long pause on Bernie Sanders and questions why these people would uh, support a tyrannical dictator. But she does like you just you just created that premise of this argument yeah. that he's a tyrannical dictator. Right. So like code pink. It's she like takes a second to left punch code pink at one point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, uh, that's like um, this is something Dan Harmon talks about sometimes in terms of comedy writing. There's a scene in uh, Ace Ventura where there's like a guy at a party who looks like the Monopoly man. And then Ace Ventura makes fun of him and goes like, well, look at me. I look like a Monopoly man. But it's like <laughs> you wrote the character and made him look like the Monopoly man. That's a trick. You just created a premise for yourself to dunk on, right? Um, it's Monopoly man logic. That's what I'm saying. Um, right. <laughs> so they have Bernie Sanders on the screen and she goes, look, uh, nice move for a white man who made a POC country. <laughs> and then it's Bernie Sanders doing a spit take while drinking coffee. <laughs> That's probably how he drinks coffee, to be fair. He seems like he gleeks a lot. Um, <laughs> He's always reading a newspaper and spitting. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a lot going on in this video. Like, for one thing, uh, she sort of, sort of just tries to push forward the premise that, like, everyone who you know, is part of hands-off Venezuela is a white person from America, and it's not what real Venezuelans believe, right? She herself is a very white Hispanic person who is, you know, from Venezuela ostensibly, but um, I think that something is like... And we found out, we found out a white person who is the daughter of someone working with Guido. Yeah, so that's the big punch <laughs> of all this whole fucking thing is like, she, like her father works for Guaido, the opposition guy who is, you know, trying to be installed against Maduro here. So what's funny about that is that, you know, that you should probably should have led with that. Um, but somebody pointed it out to her on Twitter. And then her dad, Ricardo Hausman, um, decided to tweet. Uh, here's what he said. This tweet surely deserves at least an honorary mention among the year's most sexist comments. <laughs> Since she's my daughter, 
she's entitled to her own opinion. Mother, what? <laughs> like, uh, it, Women do not have dads. Yeah. <laughs> what about Maduro's daughter? Is she entitled to an opinion that you're going to share on the New York Times website? Yeah, I don't know. To act like that's like not relevant to even bring up at all, you know, it's just so clear what's going on. Maduro's daughter has a partnership with Second City, which actually is not talking with the New York Times right now. So. <laughs> well, there's been a, a coup in Second City. <laughs> Mad Besser has been deposed or some shit. I don't know who the fucking owns Second City. <laughs> um... <laughs> Anyways, uh, I just think my take on this is just that, like, what's kind of interesting is that, like, what these people are going to try to put forward is, like, uh, this idea that, like, in Venezuela, everyone thinks this or everyone thinks that. And it's like, no, there's pro- it seems like there's two different classes and two different sides of this. Yeah, and it is, it is I mean, pretty racialized from what I gather in, in Venezuela. Like, the, you know, uh, Guaido is a little darker than say some of the other opposition leaders but that is a big cultural split there like afro-venezuelans traditionally not all of them but like the it's a pretty clear split they uh are more supportive of um socialist politics including many uh, support maduro and many just don't want the u.s to to intervene and they're not necessarily fans of maduro but they are, do not want guaido in power yeah it's a real and the white and the white venezuelans are like by and large supporting guaido yeah. Well, I mean, it shows that who's, like, had a class mobility change, right? Because uh, you have uh, Chavez taking over the country, and you have sweeping, you know, socialistic reforms, uh, golf courses being full of uh, ass-eating or what have you. Um, <laughs> whatever. Dude, this is a play. Again, my brain is full of hamburger meat right now. But... <laughs> um, uh, you know, who's affected by that? It's like white, upper crusty, old guard uh, citizens who are like having their wealth redistributed. And then the thing that bothers me about this video is it spends the whole time focusing on, you know, like complete economic unrest in the country. And then dot, 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 uh, Nicolas Maduro. Um, it, it doesn't spend any time actually like going into, you know, what the economic problems are in the country, which is, you know, uh, bad management of the oil assets and just like you know complicated things that are just glossed over. Well, also um, flat out denies equals famine. Yeah, and it flat out denies that U.S. sanctions or anything like that had a role at all in creating this situation. She just sort of brushes it off and just goes like, "Nah, not true." Yeah, you know, which is not only he keeps saying. It's bad politics. It's also uh, bad improv skills, I think. <laughs> and uh, another aspect of this that really seems fitting to me and that really bums me out is that there are, you know, these two distinct uh, classes that define the sides of this issue in Venezuela and in like expats um, from Venezuela, right? And uh, and often the people that leave are the people that are anti you know Maduro or whatever. But like just to confirm all something I've been saying about comedy for fucking ever is that yeah the rich upper crust fucking like 
you know, ruling class bougie kids that have make work jobs. Those are the fucking people that are professional comedians and that make videos <laughs> for a living and shit and go to, you know, UCB or whatever and fucking uh, write on two TV shows and I've never fucking heard of you or met you at an open mic or whatever, you know? Um, God, I don't, it makes me so mad. Yeah, and there's just... The hands off Venezuela. The blood is on our hands. <laughs> and we're at an important dinner party? <laughs> I mean, I think there's just going to be more of these. Like, it's very easy. I mean, say what you will about, like, leftists and, like, people who are socialist. And, like, especially if we got more interested in this over the past few years, and a lot of it came with the Bernie Sanders campaign. Like, a lot of the time, we're not, like, incredibly uh, intelligent people. Like, it's we're very easy to dunk on. It's true. Uh, like, if you are taught that things have to be a certain way the world works a certain way and if you question that then that's like appears very stupid it appears it's a very easy to make fun of uh that's why you had in like 2015 16 like a lot of sketch videos from places like ucb making fun of bernie sanders supporters because we're you know we're easy to make fun of we're questioning the status quo uh is not like it's 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 a very obvious thing a lot of the time like like with mike gravel i remember seeing him when i was in high school and it's like oh yeah this makes sense but uh if you see things a different way it's like no things are more complicated you can't just take this simple answer but really things are a lot simpler than than they let on and so there are going to be more of these videos that try to like show how oh yeah leftists are getting too carried away they're not appreciating the nuance of this issue and i'm going to tease it out in this like awful video where i compare bds to bdsm and just like hit that joke over the head like we're going to see in a few weeks we, we certainly have never done that on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> i yeah, think you couldn't take any 90 second clip on this podcast and make us look stupid <laughs> that's for sure oh uh, <laughs> uh, how about this how about a Zip Zap Zapatista, huh? Hey! How about you do that instead, UCV people? Instead of being, um, I don't even know what the fuck to call it. Harold and uh, Mod. Uh, Harold and Mod teams, yeah. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Didn't make I, the Harold team, was on the Mod team. I took one improv mean. class. <laughs> Um, Commandante Amy Toller. <laughs> yeah, the big four. Um, anyway, that shit sucked. That video should be uh, destroyed. Um, Can I make like one more point about uh, please the do. video? Because this really bothered me too. And that this is going to be the thing that fucks us um, with push from the liberal establishment and just, you know, uh, the liberal consensus in America overall. And this fucks us every time in terms of American imperialism is you get these like nice, clean media pushes from places like New York Times where the uh, uh, conclusion of the video is, uh, so I've shown you all these clips of leftists uh, uh, saying hands off Venezuela and sounding dumb. I think hands off is the wrong approach. What we need to do is take careful uh, other action and look into sanctions and uh, democratic reforms. And so you have these pushes back. You have this silencing of this whole wing of uh, political discussion in the country by people who, you know, you assume to be your allies if you're an anti-imperialist. Um, and then uh, Republicans run with that and they go, okay, we did sanctions that didn't work and we go to war. And then liberals get behind them 80% of the time. How about, uh, how about this? How about Venezuela takes a mime class at UCB <laughs> and then hands off because they're inside of a giant box that no one... <laughs> 
can, <laughs> can touch or else they... I think that would be a compromise everyone can agree <laughs> on. <laughs> uh, no, I agree with you, though. Um, I'd just like to take a moment to acknowledge my new one-woman show about uh, being a child of Venezuela whose father Venezuela. is in the State Department. Uh, this is... A new venture for me. I'm going to be doing it in Edinburgh this year. Uh, <laughs> I'm comfortable being unfunny. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, what else happened this week? We should talk about um, the bulletproof. You want to lead us into that? Yes. So, uh, I think this was not, a, unfortunately, it was not an issue we got to ask the Senator Mike Ravel, whose interview will be, will be coming up later on the program. Uh, we did not get to ask him about this, but I think it's a pretty pressing issue in terms of civil liberties. Uh, two men in Arkansas were arrested uh, for taking turns shooting each other while they were wearing a bulletproof vest. And uh, originally, the guy after he got arrested said that, oh, somebody just drove by. It was like a drive-by shooting and I had my vest on. Uh, but the police did a follow-up and it turns out that they were drinking and they wanted to try out the bulletproof vest. Oh, like you do? Yeah. You know, it's you got to make sure it works somehow. Uh, and the first go around, the, it was a little too weak. Like, it, it, it's, the guy still got a red mark on him and he got mad. And so he had his friend try it on and he shot him like five times. Uh, didn't, they weren't like injured from the bullets, but there was, you know, they were just testing it out. Uh, and they both get arrested for like um, they have a felony. It's it's uh, no formal. Oh wait, no, sorry, no formal charges have been filed yet. But I don't know what they're going to charge him with. Like, um, th- if you're going to have guns be legal in Arkansas, then you're not okay with people using them. Like they're not allowed to try out their equipment. This this to me, I think the libertarian. Um, <laughs> This should be central for the Libertarian Party debates coming up. Like, uh, you oh, know, there will be a lot of men in like acid washed tight jeans uh, with their polo shirts tucked into them, yelling about this. Come <laughs> the the uh, convention, the Libertarian convention. Yeah, they're uh, better. I don't know. It's what, what two consen- consenting adults do in their own home <laughs> with their rifles. I believe that shooting someone is between a man and a woman that he loves right. <laughs> two two men and, uh. and a dog <laughs> no it's a it's a fucking uh, smith and wesson not uh, smith and uh, <laughs> not uh, smith and steve <laughs> how yeah. long do you think they're gonna be in jail for do you think they're gonna be locked up yeah, they might get them on like disorderly conduct or something, or like, um, you know, uh, the noise complaint might be a noise complaint. I think it's technically sodomy in some states. <laughs> <laughs> this does remind me of one of those weird stories that you would hear like Doug Stanhope dig up and talk about in his act. Like, uh, he had a bit about uh, the f- cops breaking in on two guys fucking in a state that where sodomy was technically illegal or whatever, and then he did some weird Stanhope shit with it and made it funny. But um, it is like, I mean, it's a funny, like, you know, news of the weird story, but it, it does raise some questions like, can you shoot your friend consensually? Right. And to be clear, a lot of people, I tweeted about this and a lot of people were like, oh, yeah, they should be allowed to kill each other because they're both dumb and they're both rednecks. And it's like, I don't know. I don't know these guys. Maybe they're perfectly nice. I have no idea. But uh, 
And maybe guns shouldn't be legal. I'm not even commenting on the gun issue. Just the fact there is no law on the books against this. You can't just make up a law and throw these people in jail. <laughs> well, you can't you do it ad hoc. We'll put the GoFundMe they for them in the bio. They were shooting each other for charity. <laughs> yeah, that, maybe that would be a good way to raise money. You know, that's going to be uh, pretty... Well, with the healthcare system, somebody gets shot, they're not going to get covered. Uh, so we're already like funding, funding people's healthcare bills with GoFundMe's anyway. You might as well have an event where people do this for money, to raise money for people who have actually been shot and can't afford to pay their bills. All right, the Rog of Memorial show is canceled. We are raising money for the two Arkansas guys that shot each other. <laughs> um, speaking of libertarians and tactical vests, um, similar story happened this week when a Fox News... Uh, correspondent or contributor rather named Lawrence Jones the third uh, filmed a segment at the border of you know the, the southern US border near Mexico wearing a, a fucking t- a tactical vest that he swears up and down the border patrol made him wear because he was in like a dangerous area <laughs> but he's just looks like he's wearing a tiny children's green backpack like uh, on his front side <coughs> um, he got roasted really hard on Twitter over it, and his response was like, they made me wear it. Uh, the whole thing is hilarious <laughs> because they clearly were trying to do, like, um, you know, that shit that, like, uh, that reporters... I think they were trying to harken back to, like, remember, like, in the... When, uh, you know, reporters on the ground in, like, uh, Bosnia and shit were, you know, in all the tactical gear and everything was in night vision and stuff, and they're they're trying to paint that picture of just, like... The, the southern border, as if it's a fucking war zone where, like, you need to wear a tiny backpack on your front side or else, you know, who knows? You could get stabbed out of nowhere or shot in just your tummy area. I am here on the ground in the battle zone of El Paso, Texas, and we are out of sangria. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're out of Menudo. It's a fucking dire situation. <laughs> it really does. Yeah, it looks Actually, almost... into my tactical pouch, I did bring my own handle. <laughs> and we're just going to take care of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Um, anyway, bad week for vests all around, I'd yeah. say, of all kinds. Yeah, it, unless it's a yellow vest in the nation of Francais. Uh They seem Francais. to be on the ascendant, the yellow vest guys. Movement. Not just guys. Oh, 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 en français. Okay. Um, well, with that said, I guess we should sort of uh, swing into the main event here. Um, so, yeah, cat's out of the bag, everyone. We managed to secure an interview with uh, Gravel himself, Senator Mike Gravel uh, from Alaska. Gravel gang. Uh, the Gravel gang. Gravelistas. Uh, gang gang. Gravelistas, gravelismo, um, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Um, for anyone unfamiliar with this sort of interesting leftist viral story that popped up in the last couple weeks, um, Mike Ravel is a senator from Alaska who has a long and storied career. Um, he sort of ran as a Democrat for the Senate in Alaska um, a long time ago and, and uh, got into office you know, right around the time Nixon got into the office, around 69-70, and during Watergate was the senator that read the uh, Pentagon Papers on the floor of the Senate um, and made a name for himself 
in sort of being a, a big proponent of anti-U.S. imperialism. Mind you, this is all during the Vietnam War. And, you know, from there, his career sort of uh, bends and turns all over the place. And he eventually, um, you know, I think he had like two terms in the Senate. Um, talked a lot about the concept of popular legislation. He was very interested in, uh, in, in sort of creating like a voter-based system of, uh, of getting bills to the Senate, which is really interesting. Um, and uh, as you'll see in, in the interview, uh, also has a lot of other interesting takes on things. Ideas. Um, yeah. He uh, uh, was for the pipeline that was built there. He had a lot of interesting takes on like Sarah Palin. He was kind of for her, even though he was against McCain. Insane. Um, <laughs> interesting. Um, but and we interviewed him, and I think that it, you know, in the heart of what he's talking about, there's a lot of interesting radical ideology. Uh, but I, we'll make no bones about the fact that I think I, we disagreed with him on a couple of things regarding yeah. uh, electoral politics and. Um, and just for fun, Dude, we, I just want to hear this UFO part. Serious, <laughs> <laughs> I missed this. Yeah, to his credit, we asked him about some some of the weirder stuff that we were able to dig up about him. Like uh, a group, uh, he accepted money from a a group that um, is you know is pro UFO research, and um, he just answered the questions. <laughs> he seemed to have no problem. <laughs> but um, the reason that he's sort of a viral story right now is that um, so he's you know his. His uh, online presence has been rather dormant since about 2008. He did have a resurgence in 2008 when he ran, um, you know, against uh, Hillary and Obama in sort of a protest uh, campaign, um, you know, just to sort of raise a lot of questions about imperialism, etc. The main thing is I think he wanted to get out of the debates and he got a little bit of time to speak on the debates and got to speak a little bit more radically than a lot of the other people. Um, and so there's some interesting interviews with him back then where he, you know, very presciently predicted the uh, failure of the promises that Obama was making and the fallout thereafter. Um, and after that, he uh, yeah, he went kind of back to uh, back to doing his own thing for a long time. But recently, a couple of high school kids proposed that he run again in 2020 as a uh, as a, like a protest um, and he he took him up on it and handed them essentially the keys to his Twitter account because as he you know admitted to us wholeheartedly he's not a, you know he's an old man he's like 88 <laughs> years old and so he was like does not know his own Twitter handle he doesn't he doesn't know his own Twitter handle and he just go, went you know what go for it you guys run this Twitter uh, uh, account for me so his Twitter account is fucking awesome it's tight as shit it's a uh, it's just these high school kids shit posting and doing memes and just bodying the other candidates in the race um there's a lot of good takedowns of like beto and, and people like that and the open statement is sort of that uh yeah this is not he's not running to win the presidency he, uh you know he will back the most progressive candidate who wins the nomination he just wants to uh get the uh the amount of donors that it takes the 65 K or whatever it is to, uh, to appear on the, uh, the debates so that he can, you know, pull just the Overton window further left, which I think is admirable and cool. And the fact that he, 
is working with a bunch of Zoomer shit posters is very <laughs> cool and very funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> so and going on our podcast and going <laughs> on our podcast, which seemed to just—I <laughs> mean, I guess I just respect overall the uh, completely. Um, like flippant nature of the whole thing because he didn't seem to really care like what we were gonna do with this. <laughs> sort of hoping that uh, his new um, band of his new posse, the new the Grevelistas, will give him a little more uh, focus and, and direction for some of his things. Uh, but he, yeah, he has some good positions that I hope will um, mo- continue to move the conversation to the left. I can't believe he talks to us. This <laughs> is so fucking crazy. But, uh, yeah, so I guess... Um, In conclusion, gang gang. Senator Mike Gravel, welcome to Pod Damn America. Uh, my name is Jake Flores. I'm with my uh, comrade Anders Lee. Here. Anders Lee here. Um, thank you for joining the show. We are big fans. We're in the Gravel gang. That's um, right. <laughs> thank you for your well, time. We we call we call them now the gravelistas. Oh, I ah. love it. Yeah, that's a little bit more uh, our flavor. It's yeah, a little bit, a little bit yeah, lefty. That's, that's <laughs> like that's a takeoff on the, Z- the zapatistas. Oh, of course. Believe me, we know all about it. Right. Or the sandinistas. You got sand. You got gravel. Pretty soon, we're gonna have all the minerals together in a, oh. a mineral coalition. <laughs> true. True. It's it's an evolved form. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, welcome to the show. Um, so I don't want to take up too much of your t- too much of your time, but I was wondering if you could tell us just um, uh, and our listeners a little bit uh, in just broad terms about um, why you are running for president in uh, the twenty twenty race. Well, uh, David Oak and uh, Henry w- uh, William uh, Henry uh, Williams uh, contacted me uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, on the phone, asked me if I'd run for president, and I responded to them and said, do you realize how old I am? <laughs> and they said, no, it doesn't make any difference. Well, I says, you know, I'm pushing, uh, I'll be, eight, I'm 89. And uh, and so, but what they, they were able to convince me by, by the fact of what the research they had done and the fact that they felt that uh, the purpose was not to get elected, obviously, but the purpose was to get into the debates and then to move the dialogue of the debates uh, to the left. And, and obviously I could do that uh, quite well uh, based upon what happened in 08. So that, that's how they persuaded me. And then we, we discussed a, uh, a platform of the various issues uh, that were involved and what really swayed me when they pointed out that they thought the top priority was Creating a legislature of the people, which is something that I've been working on for the last generation, and so that really floats my boat. So when they pointed out that of all the issues, that's the top issue, uh, then I, I got totally committed, and and I shared with them that they would run the show. There's no way I can run around the country uh, making appearances. I could do Skype uh, interviews like this or. Uh, and, and obviously, if we can get me on to the debates, I would go to the debate. But but other than that, it would be just a question of uh, getting organized uh, for in 20 different locales, states, 
uh, to raise the 65,000 members donating uh, and hopefully maybe getting enough uh, attraction uh, to get 1% of the vote. Now, uh, with respect to attraction, what really happened is uh, we have had over 26 uh, million uh, hits on the website they created, which is microbell.org. Uh, and, and that, from my point of view, that's quite awesome. Uh, I'm not as techie, techie as they are. But keep in mind, these are kids, these are 17, 18 years old, and they're doing this on their own. Uh, I've given them access to my Twitter, uh, Twitter account, which I have not used. Uh, and so they've been using that to propagate uh, the, their organization. And, and so apparently they have uh, 60 or 600, I'm not sure, uh, detailed, specific supporters who want to get actually involved in the mm-hmm. campaign. So that's where we're at. Well, it's, it's really cool to see uh, young people involved in this. I mean, uh, I first heard of you when I was 16 um, at those 2008 debates, and that was like a big actual part of my uh, politicization. And, like you know, that kind of turned me on to other stuff, Noam Chomsky, Marx eventually. Uh, but so seeing you on that debate stage actually um, making an anti-imperialist argument. Uh, but there's been a lot of attention paid now to um, the narrative that uh, the Democratic candidates now in this primary are, have moved to the left. They're more progressive than in years past. Uh, do you buy that or do you think it's it's all for show? No, I think there's certain candidates that are to the left and other candidates that purposely uh, stay in the middle uh, and, and may have certain uh, right tendencies. But the candidates that are that I think that are progressively to the left are obviously Bernie Sanders, uh, well, uh, Tulsi Gabbard out of Hawaii, uh, and uh, the Mass- uh, what's her name from Massachusetts? Uh, Warren Elizabeth Warren, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, so, the, the, in my mind, those are the most uh, pro- progressive candidates. Now, I'm very, very impressed with Ocasio Cortez. Uh, and, and, and of course, she is doing a great deal to push people to the left. It'll surprise you that one of the things that I hope will happen is that uh, Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg, will, will re-enter the race next year. Hmm. Uh, because I think what he would do, he, he would be middle of the road, but he would not be averse to... Uh, if he were president, and he and I think that he's got the best chance of beating Trump uh, in in that regard. And uh, to me, the ideal uh, group would be him as candidate, uh, Tulsi Gabbard as vice president, uh, and Elizabeth Warren uh, involved in the administration, and uh, Ocasio Cortez uh, as Speaker of the House. Michael. <laughs> so, you're talking about Michael Bloomberg, the head of Bloomberg Media, former mayor of New yes, York. Yes, Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of of, uh, of New York. He did a great job as mayor. Uh, I first off, I've met Michael Bloomberg. I don't think he's uh, very impressed with my political stance. I he probably thinks I'm too radical. Uh, I I really want to beat Trump, and I think that Bloomberg has the best chance to beat Trump. 
Now, will he be able to get the nomination? I, I think he could. He's got enough of an organization and the, and the resources, the funding, to, to pay for the campaign out of his pocket. And if he did that, then what would happen is there would be no competition for raising money for the rest of the Democrats uh, to continue in the House and take over the Senate. So, uh, and then, of course, with a progressive Congress, uh, then they were the ones that would be dictating the legislation, not so much the president. Uh, I, well, Senator, I must say I'm a, a little surprised uh, at the this the, this revelation. I mean, uh, Bloomberg is sort of a center, if not right wing figure in American politics. He uh, oh, no, oversaw no, stop and frisk policies in New York. He's very pro Wall Street. He uh, has spoken out against the Green New Deal, against Medicare for all. Um, why not, uh, you know, support a more progressive candidate such as well, yourself? I, oh, I, I certainly would. Yeah. But uh, what I'd like to see first is have him enter and then see how he stack, stacks up in the polls with Bernie Sanders. My my choice, absent Bloomberg in the race. Now, when I say Bloomberg in the race, uh, he's uh, he's talk, well, I'm talking about him in the race and having enough uh, poll numbers to beat Trump. Uh, whether Bernie can beat Trump, he could the last time, but he was sabotaged by Obama and Hillary and uh, Wasserman. Uh, Washington Schultz. Yeah. Uh, so, but, but no, go back to, let me go back to uh, Bloomberg a moment. Uh, when you say uh, he, he could have more impact on the control of, of Wall Street than any other candidate uh, because he is a billionaire in his own right uh, and has done it uh, in a very, very good way. Now, the only negative that I know against him because in, in, in when he was mayor, uh, the big issue was stop and frisk, and of course that did bring down the numbers uh, with uh, of criminality numbers in New York. So no, it's a qu the the question you have to ask yourself: Who can beat Trump? That's the most important thing of all. Now, if you have a progressive Congress, if you and you have a centrist president, you're going to get progressive legislation. Uh, but I'm not entirely convinced that the uh, Congress is all that progressive as yet. I think if, if we can get another round of progressive legislators elected both in the Senate and the House, then I think that would be a different matter. So the, the Bloomberg uh, deal is to find out if, if he would have the numbers, the poll numbers, to beat Trump. Now, if we've got poll numbers that show Bernie beating Trump, obviously, uh, I, w I would be endorsing Bernie and Tulsi Gabbard is who uh, I, and Elizabeth Warren. So those three people would be the ones that I would favor. But but here too, if if those individuals can't beat Trump, what's the person pr purpose of the exercise? And right now, I think the Democrats have really stubbed their toe uh, with respect to all this impeachment stuff. And, and the fact that uh, Mueller uh, did not discover that the, uh, that the Russians were running the campaign in 16. Uh, and and we, knew, we knew that as a group, the veterans of intelligent, uh, intelligence uh, uh, persons who had done an analysis and found out that the, that the, uh, that the uh, 
the information on the on the drive in in the computer in uh, in the DNC uh, was taken off by a thumb drive. It wasn't taken. It wasn't done by hacking. It couldn't physically physically be done by hacking. Well, so, I certainly agree with your uh, diagnosis of the you know the Democrats having sort of shot themselves in the foot over all this Russia stuff. But with respect to your prag like your pragmatism and your argument about. Um, Bloomberg, I just I, I I did read a great deal about you in preparation for this, and also watched some old um, interviews you gave, and I can't help being reminded of uh, an interview that you gave in two thousand eight that seemed kind of prescient about um, Obama and his sort of uh, you know h- h- the way he was promising um, everything to everyone and how it was going to uh, be his downfall eventually. However, it did seem to get him elected. So, I mean, don't don't you what's think... He done? What's he done since he's been elected? Oh, jack you shit. Mean, I mean, I agree. Um, oh, it, it, it's a tragedy. Well, uh, it, it really is a tragedy because if, if, you, if you recognize that, uh, that uh, what uh, the, the President Trump, how he got elected... He got elected because of Obama's leadership. Trump should never have got elected. Uh, And and Obama drained the financial coffers uh, of the Democratic Party. And then Hillary came in and bought the party. Uh, And then uh, every time I would see Bernie Sanders uh, with Obama and his arms, Obama's arms around Bernie, Bernie got trapped. He, 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 He would have needed to... Uh, come out against Obama's uh, programs because Obama was not progressive. He was good at making speeches. That's it. Nothing ever happened after the speeches. And and so th- there's a whole host of things uh, here. Obama putting Chelsea Manning in jail. Uh, and uh, it, well, it goes on and on. There's nobody in the uh, presidency that's done more uh, to uh, to try to incarcerate whistleblowers than has Obama. I certainly yeah. agree. Um, I just that leads me to then think that uh, that would probably lay the groundwork for someone like Sanders to probably win handily in the next election. Given you know the, re- the it seems like people are fed up with Obama and Hillary and centrist Democrats for these reasons. Um, I don't know. I'm just curious. Uh, do you not think that? Sanders could win, or do you think that he would win and then sort of have the same uh, same fallacy as Obama in not two, being able to pass yeah. legislation? Two two problems. Uh, one of the 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 only executive experience that Sanders has is, of course, as mayor of uh, Burlington in Vermont. Uh, but the, but uh, here, uh, there Jack Kennedy had very little experience, executive experience, and so uh, it generally speaking. Uh, uh, presidents are better equipped, uh, individuals are better equipped to be president if they've had executive experience. But that doesn't mean that you couldn't get a legislator that would be function very well and effectively. The, the, the key thing with uh, Bernie is if Bernie's numbers can hold up, I'm not concerned about his age. You know, he can, uh, I, I know how he can function. But if his numbers hold up, then that, obviously that would be the preference. But if his numbers don't hold up uh, uh, vis-a-vis Trump, then uh, and that's the reason why I'd like to see Bloomberg in the race. I haven't endorsed him. 
I want to see him in the race so that we can see how the numbers would shape up in the polls in that regard. Uh, but here again, if the numbers favor Bernie, uh, he, he would be my first choice. My second choice would be Tulsi Gabbard uh, and uh, Elizabeth Warren. But but I, I wouldn't be uh, put aside by the fact that uh, Bloomberg would be a centrist. Here, here, Nixon was the one that went to China, and he was the most China-baiter in, in American history at the time. So Bloomberg would be probably better equipped to handle Wall Street, uh, joining forces with uh, uh, the, uh, what's the name, Senator from uh, Massachusetts. Elizabeth Warren. I think, yeah. She's got great plans of breaking up uh, the, the big corporations. Uh, yeah. It's just in terms of electability, I have a hard time uh, accepting that Bloomberg would fare better than Clinton. And you know, especially if you look at those uh, battleground states where a lot of um, voters went from Obama, Sanders to Trump, people who were uh, kind of alienated by Clinton's ties to Wall Street and her um, her economics, which are you know are pretty similar to Bloomberg's. I have a hard time seeing the, uh, that voting base going to him. But in terms of uh, foreign policy, which is a big uh, reason you're running to get more attention to that, um, which has been an issue that uh, Sanders ignored to an extent in 2016, what are some issues uh, with imperialism uh, that you don't think are being reconciled right now uh, among the current crop of, of candidates? Okay, with the first uh, part of your question, uh, with respect to Sanders, Sanders has really developed a foreign policy. He didn't have one to speak of in a way, uh, but but he he has one now. With respect to the main issue, uh, the one that disturbs me the most is the nuclear one. Yeah, uh, and and the tragedy there is, <clears throat> I don't think that there's anybody that can get elected that can alter that situation. That's the reason, and let me give you the numbers. Uh, the, the, head, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Dunford, came out and said that the highest priority of the Pentagon uh, is the refurbishment of our nuclear arsenal. Now, what that means in great detail is you've got your submarines, so it's not only the warheads, but they're going to build new kinds of submarines. Uh, same thing with the silos. And the same thing with the cruise missiles. So th this is, and, and so what they're doing, they're in a process right now, <clears throat> excuse me, they're in a process right now of spending $1.7 trillion on refurbishing our nuclear arsenal. Now, if you take the, uh, the issue of uh, cost overruns, it's probably more like $3 trillion that we're going to spend on this. <clears throat> and when you see people saying, you know, we can't afford health care, we can't afford to educate our children, this is silly. There's, the money is right there. You can take it uh, from this nuclear refurbishment. Now, let me address the nuclear refurbishment. Secondly, <clears throat> we can't use the weapons. Now, if we, here, even right now, if uh, the, we have a first strike capability, it doesn't matter who does the first strike. If you unload upwards of 10 to 100 nuclear weapons, you have plunged the earth into a nuclear winter and we're all going to die. And, and so that's what we have 
as, as our leadership of the country, which is certifiably insane, because when they're sitting around the table talking about a, a weapons that will annihilate the planet, when there's anybody that uses them, we've got nine countries that have nukes. And if any country, whether it's Pakistan uh, or India, unload their weapons, we're all going to die. It, and so for the military to sit around saying that, well, we need first strike capability so we can terrorize our opponents uh, into compliance, it's ridiculous. We can't use the weapons. So if we're going to spend upwards of two, three billion, trillion dollars on weapons that are not usable in any sane society, then there's something wrong. Now, can Bernie or can anybody who gets elected address this problem? I doubt it. And that's the reason why uh, I've spent most of my time developing a process whereby we can uh, empower the American people to become lawmakers by creating a legislature of the people. And with a legislature of the people, then we can deal with the military-industrial complex at Wall Street. Absent that, uh, I don't see that's possible regardless of who gets elected. Yeah, well, we certainly want to, to talk about that uh, in a moment. But while we're on the, the foreign policy topic, there are, uh, seems to me, still a couple third rails. I mean, you said uh, Bernie's platform is now getting a little more detailed but um, what about the issue of military bases? We have uh, hundreds of military bases all over the world. Uh, what do you want to see done there? And secondly, um, well, let's something stop that right I, there. Let's stop right there. Okay. That, that's the reason I want Tulsi Gabbard to, to be the vice president or president. Uh, but I think she's more likely to, as a candidate for vice president. That, that's her shtick. She, she wants to close all these bases which are in position to bring about uh, changing uh, administrations in all these countries, like in Venezuela. Uh, and so the closure of the bases will save a lot of money also, which will help fund education and health care and, uh, and rebuilding our infrastructure. So no, uh, I, uh, I, have, I don't recall anything offhand, but, I, but I'm sure Bernie would not object to closing all the bases. And, and I don't know about Bloomberg. If the Congress started closing the bases, I don't think he would veto that kind of a program. Uh, well, well, Gabbard, though, is sort of hawkish when it comes, I mean, when it comes to sovereign dictators and stuff. Of course, she doesn't want regime change like in Syria and other places. But uh, she is pretty hawkish with groups like ISIS, um, non-state actors. Do you really believe that she would do that? Has she said that, that she wants to bring all the troops home? Oh, yeah, I'm sure that that would be the policy she would attempt to do, whether she'd be able to do it or anybody would be able to do it in the presidency. Um, the, the, basically, my experience has, has taught me that uh, the ability to change the direction of our country is not possible within the context of representative government. That, that's my basis of thinking in that regard. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't elect fine people to public office, but I don't think that they can make a change if they get into public office. All of these people that I was telling you are my ideals, Warren, Tulsi, Bernie, and, and possibly, uh, uh, possibly Bloomberg, uh, they won't be able to make these fundamental changes. The fundamental change is to bring the people into the operation of government as legislators. 
And the people. Okay. <clears throat> I think I'm beginning to sort of understand the uh, the Gravel ideology, which is that it, uh, ending American imperialism is not possible without the uh, popularization of ledger legislation. Does that sound maybe somewhere? Correct. Okay, Correct. got it. Correct. But, but keep in mind that what I'm talking about is out of the box, and and it's it's not understood by the leadership. Period. Uh, and of course, uh, less understood by the people. But right now, uh, I, I gave up. I thought that I wouldn't possibly see this in my lifetime. But <clears throat> our our website uh, has got 26 million plus hits. Well, that means that what what this could happen is this could go viral. Secondly, I'm two thirds of the way in finishing a book, which will be a, sh a short book, about 80 pages. And uh, and it'll be uh, public. I'll be turning it over to the publishers in end of May, and uh, it should be available in midsummer. Now, this book, the only purpose of it is is to outline in detail, in detail, uh, the legislature of the people. And once the people see the detail and how this would function, it, it would function much better than the Congress has ever functioned or any state legislator. And that's what would be in the hands of the people who would then be able to vote on laws in a very deliberate fashion. Uh, you, don't, you don't do what you did with Brexit. You turn around and you throw it out there, let the people vote, and they're ignorant, ignorant of all the ramifications. And, and so they vote the emotion, and you get the stupidity of where, we're, where they're stuck on Brexit. And incidentally on Brexit, uh, John Oliver, the comedian had the best answer is declare the referendum that took place as improper, inadequate, uh, and and just void the whole thing, and that solves the Brexit problem. So, but but if you want to go into more detail, develop your own questions that you want to ask me on the functioning of the legislature of the people and how we would get it enacted. That's the key thing. It's great to write the legislation. But how are we going to get it elected? And I have the answers to that in very specific form. Can you give us a sneak preview how we're going to get that enacted? Pardon me? Can you give us a sneak preview of how we're going to get this enacted? Oh, very much. Very much. Here, uh, the, the, the people are not addressed at all in the Constitution. Uh, and our forebears thought the people uh, were incompetent, were a mob, and, uh, and never brought them into the process of ratification of the Constitution. Now, keep in mind that the Constitution became the law of our country through Article 7. If you look at Article 7, it says that when the states of uh, uh, state conventions of nine states ratify this Constitution, it becomes the law of those nine states. Now, that was illegal at the time under the Articles of Confederation which said that you could only make changes uh, based upon unanimity that everybody agreed. Well, at the convention, Rhode Island wasn't there, so it was impossible to get any agreement uh, in compliance with the existing law, which was the Article of Confederation. So now you ask yourself, that uh, how, did, how, did this, how did this work? Well, it worked very simple. <laughs> the nine states conventions that voted ratified the constitution then the the volition of that is what is what established the constitution and then others follow now if you take that precedent 
where the simple act of voting for something not only in, uh, enacts the issue that's involved, but it also uh, sanctions the process with, by which the issue is brought into law. So if we use that as a precedent, we can say that, well, the people uh, are the sovereigns, uh, and though the founders didn't want to empower the people directly, they did make this, the mistake of saying in the Constitution that we, the people, do ordain. That's, that's, those are the first words of the Constitution. Well, if we, the people, do ordain, it means that we are implicitly the creator of the government. And so if we're the creator of government, we obviously can change the government. And if we need permission of the government to change the government, then there's something wrong with our logic. Because if we're the creator, we can't ask what we create to give us permission to change the creation. So the, that's, the, those, that's the fundamental logic that's involved. Now let's pursue that a little bit more. Is that there's nothing here. We, we've seen with the various initiatives that are run in 23 states, basically 12 of them very active, uh, we've seen that there's the representative government always attempts to sabotage the, uh, the people exercising the legislative power. And there's a reason for it, is because whenever the people exercise their legislative power, they dilute the power of representatives in government. And since the elites control our society via uh, funding the representatives in government, then that's the, they want to maintain that power. Now, the safest thing for us to do is to say, now, I want to back up one moment. When uh, the, the methodology I'm talking about of enacting uh, the legislature of the people is endorsed by James Madison. Now, that's the guy that, that was the father of the Constitution. That's the guy, like the rest of them, that said that he can't trust the people. Uh, but when he was asked the question, of course, of the con uh, convention in Philadelphia, uh, Carroll of Maryland asked him, well, how can we change the Constitution? Uh, because uh, we're talking about the Articles of Confederation. Because requires unanimous consent. Madison responded saying, well, we can get over that problem by the people using first principles. And first principles are very simple. People just do it. So when I'm talking about an election to, to, to enact the national citizens and the, the legislature of the people, uh, I'm talking about a process to circumvent entirely the government and to ratify the constitutional amendment that I've put forward with, along with a federal law called the Legislative Procedures Act. And so that would be the package. So any group of individuals, let's say you and I and maybe 20 others, want to hold a national election, and we can fund it. What I'm talking about will take several hundred million dollars. Make no mistake about it. Uh, but we would then, this group voluntarily would come together, would not become a nonprofit, would not be tied to any uh, a, a government, state or federal, because if it did, then the state or federal government, their representatives could use the device, the power of government to sabotage this effort. So we have a voluntary, volunteer group of individuals that then set up the mechanism to hold a national election. Well, that's not rocket science, right? 
uh, they can just now we have something unique that we didn't never had before, and that's we have the technology to ask to ask the people, do you want to become a lawmaker by creating a and voting for a a uh, legislation that creates the legislature of the people and provides for the procedures for the people to act within that legislature as and make laws. So they can ask that, but that's that is the issue of the national election. Do you want to vote uh, for creating the, the a legislature of the people? So now you got two problems. Can the government stop you from doing that? Of course they can. Uh, this uh, we're talking about exercising of uh, freedom, uh, the First Amendment, which is the right to assemble. And that's what an election is: is the right to assemble. So they can't touch us on that score. Uh, can they touch us once this is enacted into law? Of course they can, because what we're doing is we're amending the Constitution. And the Constitution, in the first section, just asserts uh, our, our legislative powers, okay, which, we give, which we give away normally on Election Day. The second thing it asserts, which is really what Article 7 is all about, it says that the election that permits the people to vote to create a legislature of people. That very election is legal by the by voting for the constitutional amendment. And that's exactly the precedent that we use for Article 7. So that takes care of that. The next thing the section of the amendment does, it creates a, a trust, a, a citizen's trust, that will be able to do the administrative activities and, and the procedures in, on behalf of the, of the people. Now, every legislative body has a central uh, agency that does the legislative, uh, the housekeeping activity in the Senate. We call it the Secretary of the Senate. So the next thing that we would do is we've got to be able to uh, define uh, what the people, once they're making laws, how would they amend constitutions and charters and how they would enact uh, laws normally. And so the laws that they would enact would just be a simple majority of the people who voted. But to amend the constitutions and uh, charters, they would take two elections. There would be more than 50% of the electorate uh, voting in two elections, and then they could amend any constitution. So that's how the people would begin to legislate in amending constitution items. Like the first thing that uh, people would probably want to do is to turn around and uh, do away with the Electoral College, which would make sense. The second thing, uh, my agenda, once uh, we would get going, would be to have term limits for the judiciary so that the Supreme Court and all of the Federal Court of Appeals and, and all the federal judges would be limited to a 12-year term. They either got promoted to the next level or they got out. And, uh, and, and that, I think, would be from a judicial point of view would be a, a great improvement. So that <clears throat> that's how we would have this election. And then how who's going to how are we going to fund the legislature of the people? Real simple. We state it in the constitutional amendment. Now keep in mind, whenever I'm putting things in the constitutional amendment, that can't be changed except by another constitutional amendment. And so the Supreme Court cannot uh, in, uh, invade the process of creating a constitutional amendment. Now, it can interpret what the language says. And so the language that we've used is very straightforward, uh, and we've left a, a lot of legalese aside. 
So now, so now the people would be able to function, but where's the money going to come from? In the Constitution, we say that the we hereby agree to appropriate from the Treasury of the United States a sum of money equal to what is appropriated to the Congress would be appropriated to the legislature of the people. So now it's funded. And then the uh, I've added a couple of other uh, elements. One is that only a natural person uh, would be able to introduce legislation or fund it or be involved. That, of course, begins to put aside, which we could then do with a, an amendment once the people are, are involved, is do away with uh, what the Supreme Court has granted with, uh, with this unlimited money uh, coming from corporations. So that's the process. Do you have any questions about yeah, that? Yeah, well, <laughs> well, it sounds good to me. Uh, I guess my main question would be, uh, what's the importance of tying this to another movement that's starting to spread now in the United States for economic democracy, the ability for workers to make decisions at their workplace, um, some might call socialism? What's the, the, uh, the, the, the plan to t- kind of tie those things together? Well, the, the, the amendment that I would be offering within the legislature of the people would not be that. <clears throat> I don't think that's very effective. What what I would like to see happen, I don't know if you're familiar with Kelso Economics. Kelso? Kelso. Like from that 70s show? <laughs> Pardon me? Kelso, you said? Kelso, K-E-L-S-O-E. Okay. I've, I've heard the term, but I can't off the top of my head. Uh, okay, he, he he was an attorney who developed, the, the, are you familiar with ESOPs, Employee Stock Ownership Plans? Uh, I'm familiar a bit with Cooperative Economics. I don't know if that's the same, same okay. thing. Okay, well, well, he was the one that invented ESOPs. Here's the fundamental problem you have in capitalism. And that is, let me state, first off, that the, the, the cost of capital, whether you're buying a truck or you're buying a, a very large factory or a production facility, the cost of the capital must be paid for by the profits of capital. Now, the reason the way wealthy people get ahead is they use other people's money. Right, the surplus, purchase, yeah. The- purchase the capital goods, and then the capital goods uh, uh, throw off a profit, and they pay off the loans that they used to buy these capital goods. So if you turned around and set up a policy that said, of anybody who's going to get rift from their employment because of new technology, automation, all of that, well, then what we ought to do is set up a process whereby the the tool that's the automated tool that's displacing a human being, that human being should be provided for a, a, a method of owning owning that tool that's displacing him. And, and that's done to credit uh, provided by the government. And then once the tool is paid off to the government, then the, the individuals own it. And, and they can be supported by the profits the way the, the capitalists are supported. Now, that, in my mind, is a lot better than putting somebody on a board uh, in a minority position uh, that really won't be able to have the power to truly address the shortcomings of capitalism. What I'm talking about, if we had a law to do this, and, and now you'd say, well, what about all the people 
that are, are already been displaced. But, well, we could just backtrack uh, the, the process and say, <clears throat> let's take a utility company. And we could apply this to any uh, private utility company. We could, we could apply this to any corporation that's publicly traded. We pass the law. So, the, so what we, the law we pass is this, if, if the company in question, utility or a private company, uh, is going to expand itself, then it must be in purchasing uh, more productive capacity. The cost of that capacity has to be acquired via equity, not loans. Because you see what happens if the wealthy people, they go out and borrow the money, buy the productive tool, pay off the loan, and then they own the productive capacity. And they get it's a way of getting rich, the rich getting richer. What I'm suggesting is that if you're going to expand your enterprise, then what you have to do it, you have to do it via equity. That means issue stock, which means it dilutes the existing uh, ownership in, in the corporation. So now what happens is we, we back up the people to be able to buy that stock. We issue loans to the people to buy the stock. And then, then, then the, 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 the stock then throws off a dividend, and that's used to pay off the loan. And once the loan's paid off, then, of course, the individuals have that wealth coming to them uh, without having to depend on the dole. You see, the way we have our structure, uh, we, we use uh, our, our system uh, of employment to pass out money so that people can buy things. So, so what we do need is to change the way we do that. I, I, another way I'd expand on is that we should pay people not to just sit at home, but pay people to do something. Now, what could they do? They could go to, they could go to college. If you're 60 years old and you're retired, then uh, a, lot of, a lot of people my age would, would go to gen trade or other things to, to embellish their lives. And so we could pay them to do that. We could pay them to be artists like we did in this, during the Depression, where we paid artists to, to do things. So rather than just throw money at people, we could employ them to be teachers. We, I've seen a study that showed that by three or four times, money spent on education is three or four times more productive than money spent on arms. So we could expand education not just for children, but for all all human beings. So that's the the what I see as the answer to capitalism is is not to try to integrate somebody into the system that doesn't work uh, for anybody. Uh, is to is to be a little more imaginative how how he would do that. Does that help understand uh, why uh, the the nostrums that are offered right now? I do not think would be all that effective. You're not in the Yang gang. <laughs> um, you know. uh, yeah. Well, as we're wrapping up here, uh, now that you're a, a declared presidential candidate, I was wondering if we could just do a quick lightning round just to get you on record uh, with some, some issues, just like brief yes or no questions. Um, sure. Do sure, you, great. Do you support the decriminalization of sex work? Decriminalization of what? Of sex work. I, I, I don't think I understood that word. Um, so some might call it prostitution, um, paying to... Oh, 
There's, there's no question. Chasing prostitution is ridiculous. Uh, I mean, we, we, we should have a, a methodology uh, like uh, uh, like they have in, in the Scandinavian countries and in the Netherlands. Uh, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Uh, the, the you know poor uh, Kraft, the owner of the Patriots. Uh, you mean he, he, prosecuting him is is just ridiculous, just totally ridiculous and ineffective. Ineffective. You're you're not going to uh, subvert human sexuality. Uh, not to uh, mention carrying the uh, employees of that spa out in handcuffs and claiming yeah. it was rescue. Uh, you know, that's not a good look either. Right. Um, and what about the uh, boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement uh, that wants to put pressure on the state of Israel? Well, I think that that's entirely legitimate, and I'm very, very angry with people in Congress who are voting to deny the people that right, uh, that freedom, to, uh, to boycott or to oppose anybody that they think are acting immorally. Uh, and so... Uh, that and, and the key thing is that uh, here it worked for apartheid in South Africa, and I think that process would work with respect to Israel. Great. Um, now, their Medicare for all is a big issue in this campaign. Now, do you support a single payer system, or would you take it a step further to go uh, the way of the UK, like full national health insurance and health care? Full, full national. I mean. Uh, I, I get uh, VA uh, health care and I get uh, Medicare health care. I, I use them interchangeably depending on the situation. And, and I think that every citizen should have the same thing. Health care equal to the, what the VA gets and health care equal to what uh, Medic- everybody gets Medicare. Okay. Uh, now, the last time you were running for president was, of course, under the second Bush administration and uh, an issue that got a little more attention then than it does now, uh, was prosecuting officials in the government who authorized things like torture, who were involved in selling the Iraq war. Um, I haven't really seen candidates be asked about that uh, this time around. Um, In 2008, most of the Democratic candidates kind of demurred on that, including Obama, who said we need to look forward and not back. Uh, Do you think that... um, officials involved in things like torture, even under uh, Obama, um, should be prosecuted? No question in my mind. Cheney, uh, Bush, uh, the, the, they should be prosecuted as criminals. And what, what I would do is, is to open up the Treaty of Rome and sign it so that we could then have this international court. You know, we, we prosecuted Milosevic. And we've just prosecuted uh, these people, uh, Rob, uh, I forget the name, but uh, the ones that did the genocide in, uh, in former Yugoslavia. These are all criminals. And, and one of the things that disturbs me about Obama, and it puts him in this category, you know, he would meet every Tuesday with some generals, and they would go over a list of who they're going to assassinate uh, based upon drones. Right. So our ability to go around the world killing people with drones Whoever is in, involved in that should be prosecuted as a criminal. And and that, so I have no problems about that. And in our military, you, you see, we, we get so sanctified that our military cannot be prosecuted if they do something terribly wrong. We've had situations on Okinawa 
where this happened. But because they're American military, they can't be prosecuted. That, that's, that's ridiculous. That it, it tries to place us morally above the rest of the world, and, and we're not that good. <laughs> And, and, and you would extend that also to Barack Obama, who authorized uh, drone strikes, I, I which that violated that international law. as a criminal activity. Okay. The, now, but I would leave this to an international court. Uh, I, I, I don't think we would get uh, people in this country uh, to, in our judiciary, which I think leaves a lot to be desired. But uh, no, I think we would adhere to a criteria of an international court. Uh, and, and I would strengthen the U.N., uh, you know, as a federation rather than the way it is right now. As a federation, uh, like the United States is a federation, and many other places are federations, so they can implement. So rather than our doing nation building, we'll let that task done by the international community. Um, marijuana legalization, decriminalization, <laughs> etc., cetera, uh, carceral state, uh, other drugs. Uh, tell me your opinion. Totally. Uh, you know, I, I am, I'm on the board of two marijuana companies, and one of them, I'm the CEO, and I've been the CEO on the other one. I just want so, to let you get that plug in there for your business. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to give the, the names of the company because I think it would be improper for me to flag that <laughs> since it would, it would affect my stock position. But, but no, I, I've opposed Nixon from the get-go. Uh, when the Schaefer report came out saying that marijuana or cannabis was not a factor in leading to other drugs, but even the problem with other drugs, cocaine and, uh, and all of them, uh, they, it should be controlled, no question about that, but it should be controlled as a medical problem and not a, a criminal problem. As in, uh, in the Netherlands, as we do in Switzerland. So if a person has got a cocaine problem, we need to treat that person. And the, how you treat them is, is you let them have the cocaine on a regular basis. And so when they're ready to, to jump from the, uh, the problem, we're there to help them do that. But by criminalizing it, all we do is bring about its expansion. It's, it's a little bit like prohibition of alcohol. You know, that didn't work. And the prohibition of drugs doesn't work either. It's not a criminal problem. It's a public health problem. And what what about economic development around the world? We have, Right now we have uh, the Bretton Woods institutions, IMF, World Bank, WTO. Should they be dissolved? Should they be reformed? What should happen with uh, trade and development? <clears throat> what they should be doing is uh, joining forces with China with the Belt and Road Program. What China has decided to do is, is very significant. China moved 600 million people from poverty to middle class. Now, that is an, uh, uh, an accomplishment in the history of human civilization that there's no equal to. And that's what China did. Now, China, as a result of that experience, has developed a lot of excess capacity beyond what they need for themselves. And so what they've done is not to go out and build a bunch of weapons because their, their budget with respect to defense is about 10% of ours. And so what they've done is that with this Belt and Road, they have a program to go around the world and build highways, build ports, build all kind of infrastructure for the various countries so that these countries can then 
economically more benefit their the people, the citizens of that country. Now, for me, that is an unbelievable accomplishment. And so they've set up a couple of, uh, like the it's similar to the World Bank and the IMF. And so they've set up their own financial situation. And the BRIC organization has set up a financialism to finance this. Now, they are financing hundreds and hundreds of pro projects around the world today, while we are talking about financing several trillion dollars of weapons. Uh, when the, and so just make a comparison. What we're doing to the world is we put more weapons into the bazaar than anybody else in history. And what's China doing? They're trying to build the roads, the infrastructure, the communications, all of that to make people's lives improve. So you ask me, you know, how do I feel about the, uh, the uh, World Bank and the I, I don't have any feelings for them at all. I support what China is doing in that regard. And, and all, we, all you hear in the American media is the criticism of China that, oh, they're building these things in these countries so they can take over these countries. Not so. Not so. Hmm. They, they, uh, the, the, the way it's structured on these loans, it's not like uh, what the IMF does is forcing people to, uh, to punish the citizens of their countries to pay off the loans. There's no criteria like that in these loans that uh, China is putting out to build these infrastructures. Okay. And uh, lastly, I, I got to ask you this one. Who do you think did 9-11? I think it's a combination. The reason why I say it's an inside uh, job, uh, you know, who, who was on the inside doing this? I don't know that. But I do know this, that the commission that, that was put in place shortly after to study this was, was a ridiculous commission. We have never had a substantial study uh, of what happened uh, on 9-11. And that's what needs to happen. Uh, because uh, here, the commission's report didn't even acknowledge that Building 7 came down at 5.30 on the same day. And, and Building 7, if you look at it carefully, was an implosion. And then when you look, take that experience, and, and the architects and engineers and scientific community have all looked into this, and and what <clears throat> what was determined is it didn't it didn't make sense when you have the towers coming down right within their own footprint. It had to be uh, an internal explosion of sorts, and certainly the airplanes weren't sufficiently to do that. So, uh, it, when you raise these questions, you can only come away and say, "Well, this should be investigated." But then you look at the mainstream media and you look at the government, oh no, we don't want any investigations. Uh, why, why is it that the elites of society don't want these investigations? Is there something that's going to be uncovered that should not be uncovered from their point of view? And then when you look at the, what's the result of 9-11? It's the continuous war since then. And so it's the war on terror, which is a ridiculous uh, policy because Terror is innate to the human existence. It will always be with us. So we don't need sort of to like sexuality. What we need oh, to do sadness. Uh, pardon me. A sort of like uh, you were saying earlier about sexuality, terror, sexuality. You can't drug use. You can't uh, rid it from the human. It's like experience. a war on sadness. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. 
How successful would that be? <laughs> <laughs> Impossible, although we're trying. Um, I have a final question. Uh, UFOs, is the truth out there? The, here again, <clears throat> I've endorsed uh, a lot of the studies that are going on with respect to the UFO. Now, why? I, I don't claim I have any extra knowledge in that regard. I haven't seen any UFOs myself, but I've received testimony from some very scientific people that have and have their suspicions. My take on it is very straightforward, is I think it would be the height of human arrogance, the height of human arrogance to think that we are the only sentient human beings in the cosmos. It, 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 to, to think that we're the only ones in the entire cosmos that have that are sentient human beings, I think is ridiculous. So I don't know the answers, uh, and and I don't think everybody does. But to negate this and ridiculous and, and and make people ridiculous because they do they investigate this is is not an answer. Here again, there's so many unknowns, and we recognize as we go forward that uh, that. Science uh, and technology have been on a route of uh, discovery and change. And that's where we've advanced to today. The civilization is much better off than it's ever been. But by the same token, the problem is that though we've advanced with science and technology, we have not advanced with our tools of governance. So our tools of governance are 300 years old, and our science and technology is 21st century. We need to alter our tools of governance so that we can be abreast of the discovery and change that needs to take place as society moves forward. Cool. Um, and, and I will be remiss if I don't ask you this question. I'm just uh, reminded now. Uh, there's been some discussion about borders. Uh, of course, Trump is very pro-border wall. Um, but another third rail is open borders. Do you think, are you open to, to that discussion about open borders? Very, very much so. Very Great. much so. Uh, I'm first generation. My parents came here looking for employment from Canada back in the twenties. And, and so what's made this country great is immigration. And so for, for this silly, for, for the people who, who, who are nativists, who, who've been here after several generations, what they want to do is, pull up the gangplank so nobody else can come in. That is our suicide, economic suicide for us. We need open borders so that people can come in. And, and people won't come in the way they're coming in now if we can solve the problems uh, in their home countries. They're fleeing their countries because they can't make a living or there's violence. So you want to solve the immigration problem, make sure that other countries are acting properly towards their citizens. Well, that's, uh, I think, a good note to end on. Uh, Senator Mike Gravel, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, have a great day. Okay, all right. That was uh, Senator Mike Gravel, everyone. Um, the truth is out there. Uh, <laughs> Um, thank you for listening. Draw your own conclusions. Um, plugs. I have a, a plug. Um, guys, if you are in Brooklyn and you have wanted to come or usually come to the live stand-up show I run with Ian Fidance and Claire O'Kane, good news. We're now bi-weekly. We're twice a month, first and third Tuesdays. 
Um, so the next one will be the 16th of April this month. Um, four days before our holy day, 420. Uh, you still at El Cortez? At El Cortez, yes. So come on out, and um, I think that's about it. I'm laying low until that nacho is tour. unbelievable. I fucking eat those nachos when I'm so drunk. I love it. <laughs> uh, what else we got coming up? Alex, you want to plug? Yeah, um, okay. So just follow my Twitter at Patak Joke. I put out a half hour on Spotify with Danny Felt. You can listen to that. If you like it, you can buy it on Bandcamp. And I would appreciate it. I think that would be nice if you bought my stand-up album. Um, and then any other updates are going to be on there. Yeah, I love you, babies. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Anders Lee here. I have dates coming up for um, my solo show, which is not about being a rich Venezuelan. <laughs> um, but if you are in New York um, this this week, I think I think it will be the day after this comes out. Uh, our friend uh, Raghav Mehta, who of course passed away, um, we're having an event for him. We're gonna it's going to be a stand up show. We're also going to have sort of. Um, you know, have moments for, for Raghav and talk about him and what he meant to us. And uh, it's going to be at the Secret Loft in Manhattan, which is a, a secret location, but it's on 14th Street and 6th in the village. <laughs> um, and if you want tickets, you can get them online. If you just Google a comedy tribute to Raghav Mehta, the Eventbrite will come up and you can get a ticket that way. Um, yeah, it's a good... Chance, even if you didn't know Raga personally or just a fan of the show, um, it's important for for people to, to come out and, and because uh, we're actually raising money from it for um, Al Otro Lado, which is a great organization that um, advocates on behalf of uh, people seeking asylum. Lots of great comics, too. Yeah. All right. Is that a wrap? That's it. Gang, gang. All right. All right, later. Okay.